Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is The Letter to Ephesus by Pastor Sean Wood. Father, we, we just thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the privilege of the Holy Spirit. Father, I can speak words, but they are empty without the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we need you right now. That you would open our hearts, because you're the greatest heart surgeon in the universe. And that your word would be planted within and create a harvest for you, we pray. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you'd like to meet me in Revelations chapter 2. Uh, the Many people have asked. The last week was the introduction to Revelation. If you want to catch up on that, you can. Uh, I will put it up shortly. Many people have said, hey, listen, it's not on the internet yet. It will be if you, want to, if you are unable to join us last week. Uh, I don't want to keep recapping the week before simply because the book of Revelation is not linear. It's not, it's not a set of timeline events of what comes next. So it's very difficult to keep going back and recapping. But uh, basically, we will just paraphrase last week in saying that the book of Revelation, as we work our way through, book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ given to his servant John concerning the events, as we read in the first few verses, concerning the events that must soon take place because the time is near. The context of those events that must soon take place and the context of the fact that the time is near draws from Daniel chapter 2 and Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the empires that Nebuchadnezzar sees finishing with the Roman Empire and the Jewish Empire trying to commingle. But the important part of that dream or the important part of the interpretation is the rock that no human hand had honed out, it says, that was cast at the feet and shattered that empire, but from that stone, Jesus, grew a mountain. That's the important part. We understand that the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy. Now, prophecy involves the genre of prophecy throughout the Bible, involves both foretelling, which is God's word for right here, right now, as well as God's foretelling. That does include the prediction of future events. The book of Revelation has both of those. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature. We don't just find this kind of literature in the book of Revelation. We find it in Isaiah. We find it in the book of Joel and mostly in the book of Ezekiel outside of the book of Revelation. If you are to read chapters four and five of Revelation and then read the first two chapters of Ezekiel, you will immediately realize that two guys are describing exactly the same thing. They are describing what they saw when a door was opened to heaven in the, in the seraphim and so forth. You will see the description is very, very similar. Why does God use symbolic language? Why did Jesus speak in parables? Because uh, Daryl Johnson writes a book, Discipling on the Edge, which is largely about the book of Revelation. And he says, God uses symbols because symbolism and pictures are something that hook us deep inside. It moves us. And so God uses symbolism to convey deep spiritual truth. However, now we move to the seven letters to the seven churches. We know that uh, the book of Revelation is a book of prophecy. We know that it's a letter because it was addressed to seven churches throughout the then Asia Minor. Now, 
Some people have said that the seven letters represent the universal church and that it, it represents time frames down through church history. That's very challenging to reach that conclusion, considering at any point in time through church history, all seven letters have had enormous truth that applies to the church, including today. And that's what I... We're going to take a very slow walk through each one of these letters. And the first one is a letter to the church... In Ephesus, I don't know how many people here have possibly been to a, a music concert, uh, you know, back in the time of the, the Bee Gees and ABBA, you know, those days, Terry, when you had long hair and Ulla Dulla and they were rocking the, you know, <laughs> and, and you were staying alive and all those kinds of things, you know, uh, days we'd rather forget. But every concert, uh, I have found every concert holds three different tickets. Uh, you can buy a general admission ticket. Now, general admission is okay, you get to go to the concert, you get to experience the band in the flesh, but it's it's not quite the same as the front row tickets. You know, in the front row, back in general admission, you know, you've got to get your binoculars out and kind of take, you know, try and experience it. But in the front row, that's where you get your boogie on, right? I mean, in the front row, you don't just hear music, you feel the music in the front row, am I right? Like if you're sitting in the front row, you're feeling music, right? The answer you're looking for is yes, Liz, thank you for... (laughs) (laughs) she's transcribing so uh, we realise that in the front row the experience goes up a notch right we're not just listening to music anymore we can feel it but then there's the creme de la creme of tickets it's called the backstage pass now this is different you're not in the front row anymore you see in the front row you went from hearing music to feeling music you kind of felt a little something something you know, your, your flare pants were there for a reason now. <laughs> but, you know, when you go backstage, you, you get to mix with people that have put it all together, the backstage crew, and you get to go into the green room. Now, I was in the, uh, when I worked at the casino in the storeroom, one of my 432 jobs that I had when I was in Tasmania, but uh, when I worked in the storeroom, it was our job to order, assemble and deliver uh, the contents for the green room for the celebrities that would come. And let me tell you, they eat some weird and wonderful stuff. Um, yeah, it's communion on a different level, these guys. But uh, backstage, these guys are relaxed. You know, you get, you get access to, to sit down with the band. You're not listening to music now. You're able to talk to them and, and interact with them. And, and it's a far more personal. Everybody wants the backstage pass. And when we come to church circles, the sad truth is that for many of us, we settle for general admission when Jesus has given all of us a backstage pass. And just like when you're in a concert, you know the difference between general admission and backstage pass? The price you're willing to pay. And today, as we work our way through the letter to the church at Ephesus, wherever you find yourself, you know, general admission looks like this, you know, I might float in and out of church every once in a while, yeah, life groups aren't really for me, uh, yeah, I kind of pick my Bible up, um, if people corner me, I might say that I believe in Jesus, doesn't mean you don't believe, doesn't mean you don't have affections for Jesus, but you're distant. Then there's Christians that are kind of on the front rows, well, church is a little bit more of a commitment for us, and and we believe in the body of Christ and we, and, and we pick up our Bible during the day and, and we, we actively tell people about our faith in, in Christ and our love for Christ. But then there's those that occupy backstage passes. Uh, you ever know those kind of people that just being around them lifts your desire and affections for Christ? 
Uh, I remember uh, I get the privilege as pastor, if you could call it a privilege, to attend conferences. And uh, you get a variety of speakers. Am I right, Pastor Liz? You get a variety of speakers, but every now and again you'll get one that walks off the stage and you go, that guy's been with Jesus. There's a difference. And wherever you find yourself today, I want you to know by the time we finish, not only are we going to address possibly what kind of ticket you may hold, but if you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know what, I want to go backstage, I want you to know it's available to you today and you can go there and we're going to tell you how you can get there today. Praise God. Chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus or to Ephesus Bible Fellowship. Uh, interesting to note in the very first sentence that when Jesus or God has a message for the church, he does so through instituted authority. Uh, to the angel or to the messenger or to the pastor or to the leader of the church in Ephesus, I have these words. Now, God has channels of authority. It's not always the pastor, but there are those that have channels of prophetic and also apostolic channels where God brings his message to the church and to the church at Ephesus. Who are these Ephesians? What is going on at Ephesus? Maybe we can understand a little bit more about the problems of their heart when we understand the context of the city. You see, uh, Ephesus was a very cosmopolitan kind of a place. It was... It was mixed uh, ethnic groups. There were Jews, there were Greeks, there were Romans. It was it was a very idolatrous city. About two hundred and fifty thousand people comprised uh, the city of Ephesus at the time that John is writing this revelation. And and for those that are wondering how big that might be, and for those that have been to the motherland, Tasmania, uh, you'll know that it's about the size. It's about the size of Slobart or Ho- Hobart. Sorry. I'm... <laughs> For the, that's why they won't let me back, Lynn. <laughs> you, can, you can see why they said you can leave, but you can never come back. Uh, Queensland's stuck with you now. Uh, but it's about the size of Hobart, 250,000 people. And uh, it was a very idolatrous city. And this is very important because today we think we are far removed from idolatry. You see, at the time uh, that John's writing to Ephesus, it was a, uh, there was the cult of Artemis that used to worship the goddess Diana. Now, for those that read, I believe it's Acts chapter 19, which is the birth of the church in Ephesus that Paul started, you'll know that they come in and they preach Christ and everybody drops their idols and these guys start attacking Paul and so forth because they haven't got any trade anymore. The guys that used to make the the idols and and so forth, they go, well, you guys are doing us out of business, praise God. And so today we think idolatry and we think a little statue on the mantelpiece with incense rising on the sides or or maybe we think idolatry looks like I have to go to a temple and, and worship some kind of a statue. Well, that was what idolatry may have looked like in Bible times. But although the gods have different names today, career, money, ministry, idolatry is still alive today. Idolatry means we put anything else in the place of God in our lives. The minute something becomes more important than God in your life, that's idolatry. And Ephesus was a deeply idolatrous place. By the time uh, Paul, by the time uh, John is writing this, we know that uh, Ephesus was the place everybody wanted to be. It was the centre of commerce and trade. It was kind of like the Gold Coast of Asia Minor. Everybody wanted to go to the Gold Coast. 
If you're going for a holiday, you're going to the Gold Coast. Everybody wanted to go to the Gold Coast. Everybody, everybody wants to plant a church at the Gold Coast because they're all suffering for Jesus down there. And so uh, it was kind of the place to be. Everybody wanted to go to Ephesus. It was, it was abundant in wealth and so forth. And what history we know about Ephesus, we need to learn a few lessons from them because in 62 AD, that's about the time Paul plants the church, uh, writes to the church, and we read that epistle. We can read the epistle to the Ephesians in 62 AD. And you know what? Things are going pretty well. You know, Paul writes to a cosmopolitan church made up of many different ethnic groups, etc. And that's what I love about Australia. I love the multiculturalism. I think it's fantastic. And what Paul writes to the Ephesians is, you guys are Jews and Greeks and Romans and people from all over. But he says you are one body. Wow. Paul would say in chapter 2 of Ephesians that the, the gospel has broken down those walls that once divided. These guys are doing really well, but then we get to about the mid to late 60s, about, about the time Paul's beheaded under the reign and rule of Nero. And this time he's writing to the then pastor of the church at Ephesus, a guy by the name of Timothy. He writes things to Timothy like, don't let them look down on you because of your youth. There was some trouble starting to brew at Ephesus. <laughs> some of the people that had been there a while thought they, they were it, plus a bag of chips. So there was a little bit of conflict that was beginning to brew. And what we do know is that in the mid to late 60s, there was beginning to see doctrinal drift inside of the church. This is, why is this important? Why is this book so important? Because we will learn that those doctrinal drifts in Ephesus ended up tearing the church apart. And to the pastor of the church of Ephesus in the mid to late 60s, Paul writes to Timothy and says, you know what? Be ready in season and out of season. Preach the word of God. Not what everybody wants to hear or those with itchy ears. Preach the word of God. We don't know who the pastor is now. We don't know what's going on necessarily right now, but we do know that they benefit from the ministry of Timothy, Paul, Apollos, and my favourite apostle, the Apostle John. Apostle John, he, he, he spends his last years ministering in Ephesus. Eusebius, uh, the church historian, records that those that were there at the time can remember carrying feeble John uh, from his home to church. And on the way, he's saying, love one another, love one another, love one another. I can imagine him saying that. But what we do see is by the time Timothy and Apollos and John have all passed away, it's like the church falls off a cliff. And sometime in the second century... The church is completely gone. Jesus has a message to this church at Ephesus. <clears throat> if you're following with me in verse 1, I love this next sentence. It's a real encouragement to me. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, or the one who has a firm grip on the seven stars. We know from the first chapter, the seven stars are the pastors or the leaders of the seven churches. That's a really, really, really encouraging verse for me today. But before we go any further, often we make the mistake of thinking that it's us clinging on to Jesus. <laughs> often we can think, oh, I'm just clinging on to Jesus. I found Jesus. Paul says, I was found of God in the book of Galatians. And what this verse tells me is often when we think we're all it, it's then that we realize it's not our grip on God that keeps us. It's his grip on us. 
beautiful encouragement that in a time of deep persecution, which is what these churches are facing, and the persecution's about to get worse, what's the message Jesus has? I've got you right here, champ. I've got you right here in my right hand. Nobody can take us from that place. We can leave that place, but nobody can take us from that place. Moving right along to the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Like I said in in the beginning with the concert, uh, right now we are sitting here with an unseen guest. For those that may, for the two or three of you that read the pastor's comments, uh, you might understand that every Sunday we have an unseen guest here. And he's a guest. I get here early to open the doors and let him in, but he's already here. We can't escape his presence. What Jesus says to the church then is, I walk amongst, I live amongst my seven golden lampstands. And the, and the lampstand we learnt last week is, a, is representative. It's a, it's a picture from the tabernacle of the temple. And the golden lampstand would sit before the presence of God in the most holy place or in the holy place. And it was understood that to the Jews understood that the light that they gave off was representative of the presence of God. The most important thing for us, not just here on a Sunday, but every day of the week, is the presence of God. And the reason I said Jesus is a guest is he will take his presence away. We're going to learn that as we go along today. His presence will withdraw if he's not treated and reverenced and respected as he should be. A.W. Tozer says very beautifully that ignoble contentment has taken the place of burning zeal amongst the church. I wish, I wish A.W. Tozer was alive today. We, we, we need some fathers like A.W. Tozer. Tozer would go on and say that the world is perishing for a lack of the knowledge of God, but the church is famishing for want of his presence. Am I right? In Christ, we can come out of the bushes and lay our sins at his feet. You know, the temple, the imagery of the temple is the same as the concert. Whenever you entered the temple to worship God, there was the outer court, and then you moved from the outer court through a series of washing and ceremonies You would and sacrifices, your bulls and goats and cats. You would work your way up the... I know, right, we start with the cats. But anyway, you would work your way up to the holy place and then one man once a year into the most holy place. How sad it is that most of us settle for the outer court when God's presence was behind the veil the whole time. And so we don't have to be at distance from God. We don't have to be, you know, in Genesis chapter 3, when God asked Adam, where are you? God didn't all of a sudden lose him, didn't kind of say, where did I put that guy? No, he wanted Adam to know exactly where he was. Where are you, Adam? Well, I'm hiding from you. Why are you hiding, Adam? Why are you running, Adam? Why are you distant, Adam? Well, I've kind of, I've kind of done this thing called sin. That's right. The one thing that separates you and withdraws God's presence is sin. Listen to the resume here. I mean, Jesus has just said that uh, I walk amongst the golden lampstands. Jesus is near us. Jesus uh, is available to us. And here's the beautiful message of the gospel. The gospel, by the way, the word good news there means good news both in content and scope. What does that mean? It means it's good news right here, right now, today. But it also gives us a wonderful hope as we look down for the future. 
The good news of the gospel is this. God wants you. God loves you. God loves each and every single one of you. Even those from Tasmania. Especially those from Tasmania. Verse 2, I know your works. Let's, let's read on and see what Jesus has to say to the church at Ephesus. I know your works. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Started off really good, right? How many people at Ephesus are going, yeah, that's right. We've got it down, Pat. That's right. You keep going, Jesus. You keep, you keep fluffing our pillow and patting us on the back. We love this. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The, Jesus says, I know your work. I know, you, I, I know you're busy. I, I know you toil. That's speaking of laborious toil. Jesus says, I can, I can see you guys are hard at it. You're enduring, you're bearing up for my name's sake. You can't bear with those false apostles that are kind of pumping themselves up. And there's a butt coming. This one's not real nice, Terry. But how much danger are we in today of being the same as the church at Ephesus? This danger applies at a church level, but it applies at an individual level. And it, it sounds a little bit like this. What the Ephesian church had done is what many of us do. They boil their Christian walk down to and their relationship with God. They sum it up and they measure it by what they do. We're a really successful church. We've got these programs running. We've got a pump and worship band. We've got this freaky looking preacher dude from Tasmania. Things are really, really rocking. It's a formula that is actually repeated across the globe. Plant a church, find yourself a good worship leader, find yourself a good preacher, bang, formula, done. That's not Jesus' picture of church. And it's not what the Christian life was supposed to be about. The Christian life is not supposed to be about measuring up to KPIs. When you stand before Jesus, uh, what's the warning? Uh, We've done this in your name, we've done this in your name. And Jesus stands there and goes, hang on a second. Do I know you? Do we have a relationship? And the greatest danger is that we can boil our Christian life and church down to being a factory when God designed us to be an orchard and a vineyard. If you ever look in the Old Testament, whenever God speaks about his people, he speaks about a vineyard. When Jesus was telling us parables about uh, God's people in the kingdom of God. He was like a, a man planted a vineyard. And he dug a well and he built a tower and he strong fences around it. Speaking about the vineyard. And the difference between uh, a factory, and I've worked in a factory, the difference between a factory and an orchard is you lovingly tend an orchard. But a factory is all about KPIs and about, about what you can do. What happens if you neglect the vines? They wither. These guys were measuring right up. These guys were reaching all the KPIs. These guys, well, these guys had a lot that they would like to have bragged about, but now there comes an enormous but. Jesus says, 
I know you are enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 4, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I can see everything you're doing. I see you toil, I see your hard work. But you've forgotten the most important thing. You've made the main thing all about what you do and you've left the main thing. That word abandon there means to, to cast aside. It means to divorce yourself from. You have, you have left, you have abandoned, you have divorced your first love. You see, what we do know about the church at Ephesus is uh, their believers were being swept away and seduced by the culture that was around them. It was very pleasurable. But they were living in times when life was really easy. If all you did was just walk into the temple uh, every now and again with an image of Caesar and just throw a little bit of dust and go, Caesar is Lord. If you just did that, life was really easy for you. If you just gave way to the culture, if you just, if you just let... You didn't even have to give Jesus up completely. You just had to have a little bit of the world as well. And life was really, really easy. What had happened? These guys had left their first love. Remember the... uh, I was reminded of the account of Mary and Martha. We all know about Mary and Martha. And Martha's busy in the kitchen. And Mary's popped a squat right here. There's all this food to get ready and there's, and there's all this stuff that's got to be done. And Martha yells from the kitchen, Hey, Lord, how about you tell Mary to come and give me a hand? Jesus says to Martha, You're busy about many things. Mary has chosen the one thing, and that is to sit at my feet and just to hear from me. How many of us could possibly identify with Ephesus today? How many of us feel like, you know what, we're going through the motions, but there's no fire on the inside, and that's not the way it was ever meant to be? It was never meant to be that way. How many of us feel like, you know what, we've kind of walked away from the, from the banks of the river of life and we're chasing dry wells in the desert. We, we think the things of this world will satisfy, satisfy us. We're, we've told God that we're, once we get that promotion, then we'll, we'll surrender ourselves and serve him. But we're dry on the inside and, and I open my Bible and I don't understand it and uh, the fires have grown cold. And The reference to first love speaks about a preferential love. What Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus is, the love you have for me is no longer at the first place in your life. The the love you have for me, the place you had at my feet, I've... I've known ministers that have put their hand up and said, I'm out, you know, and when you boil it down, they've become all about the business and they've forgotten that there's a place at the feet of Christ where we can know his presence backstage. They had abandoned their first love. The first means to be chief or best or of first importance. I want to ask you, is your love and relationship with Christ, is that of the first importance to you today? Before we go any further, you might be, you might be saying, you know what, I feel like I'm in general admission, Pastor. I kind of turn up and I clock in and, and, I, and I, I, I guess I'm a Christian. You could call me a Christian and I love Jesus and, and I believe that he exists, but I haven't had the fires burn on the inside for a long time. 
Maybe that's you. You know, there's a wonderful passage in John chapter 14 that I'd like to share with you. I love what Jesus has to say here. Because sometimes we get this mixed up as well. Uh, chapter 14, verse 15, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Isn't it interesting that Jesus didn't take that the other way around? Jesus didn't say, you know what, if you keep my commandments, then I'll know you love me. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you love me, it's natural that you'll do these things. And often we say to ourselves, we say, you know what, I, I, I want to get closer to God, so I'll just read a little bit more of my Bible, and maybe I'll just pray a little bit longer, and, 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 and I'll come to church twice a month, or whatever it looks like for you. And we've missed the fact that those things are the outworking of a fire that burns on the inside. And I will ask the Father in verse 16, and he will give you another helper, and we need help, to be with you forever. Verse 17, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. They're beautiful verses. The best is yet to come. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I wonder if anyone's counting how many times you've heard the word love here. Be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Please highlight and circle that word manifest. That's an awesome word. Verse 22, good old Judas. Judas, not Iscariot. That's why I said good old Judas. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? How are you going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me. Oh, hello. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we, circle that word. We will come to him and make our home with him. Other translations say we will come to him and we will disclose ourselves. We will reveal ourselves. We will fully open ourselves. Wow. I didn't count because I haven't got a calculator. I can't count that far. But the word love was used, I don't know how many times in those verses. I wonder what someone's trying to tell. You might be sitting here this morning, you might say, be saying, you know what, I, I've allowed that love to grow cold. I've allowed those, those fires to grow dim. The book of Jeremiah is a very interesting book. Um, for those that have been to Lagana Christian Church, uh, Andrew did a series for the book of Jeremiah that took nine years and it still wasn't finished when I left. <laughs> Nine years and he's still finishing it off. But this is one thing I learned. One verse that haunted me was where Jeremiah comes to the people of God and they kind of lived in this false security. <laughs> they were saying, Jeremiah saying, you guys need to get your act together because if you don't get your act together, someone's going to come and they're going to sack the city and, and, and the temple and everything. And these guys are going, ah, this is God's city. This is God's city and this is God's temple. Wait for it. This is God's temple. God would never let this happen. And, and Jeremiah says, yeah, but God left a long time ago. 
Jeremiah goes on, he says, you know what? He says, you guys are all pomp and ceremony. You guys have got the clothes on. You've got the ceremonies down pat. All the sacrifices are real good. But when we pull the curtain back, it's fully your idols. The presence left a long time ago. I wonder how many of us are sitting here going, you know what? If you peeled back the curtain of my heart, God, I don't know what you'd find back there. Maybe that's all of us, to be honest. That's you this morning. You're sitting here saying, you know what? I I want to go backstage with Jesus. What am I going to do? Well, Jesus is ever so glorious. He never leaves us where he finds us. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. I now want to give you three steps. I want to give you the three R's. If you find yourself, what can I do, Pastor? How can I get closer to God? Well, let's have a look at what Jesus said to the church at Ephesus. First one is, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Why do we do communion here every week? Because we are a forgetful lot. Why did... If you have a look through the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, it is full of memorials. And they build an altar to the Lord. And they build an altar to the Lord. And when they crossed over the Jordan, they put 12 stones. Why? Because every time you come past these stones, you tell your kids what happened here. You tell them about the day that God brought you through the Jordan. But we forget those things. We forget what God did for us. We forget, it's called cheap grace. Bonhoeffer calls it cheap grace. We forget what it cost for you to be saved. We forget the price that Christ paid. That's why we have communion every week. What's God saying to the church at Ephesus? Remember where you've fallen from. Remember the place you had before me. Remember the position you held before me. Remember what it cost to get you there. Paul says to the Corinthians, how dare you live life however you want to. You were bought with a price. Your life is not your own. You're the temple of God. You treat this like a temple. More meat and less kale. (laughs) You have fallen. Remember from where you have fallen To fall away from the straight course, it's actually a nautical term in Greek, which means to drift away. Uh, For those that uh, follow, you know that I have a kayak and I go fishing. And the greatest battle we face with fishing is keeping the kayak in the right place to fish the line that we want to fish. And if you're not constantly adjusting, if you're not constantly re-jigging that, you're going to drift off course and the fish aren't there. Ask Reuben. (laughs) Jesus says, remember the place you've drifted from. You've allowed yourself to get drifted. You've taken taken your foot off the throttle. You've no longer got the paddle out and you're just drifting. Remember the course you were on. Remember where you were. First one is to remember. Second one is to repent. Do you know in the Bible you only ever repent of sin? So obviously, God occupying any other place but the first place in your life is sinful. Uh, I know this might sound like a bit of an oxymoron when we read scriptures like nothing is impossible for God, but I want to tell you there are some things God cannot do. God cannot lie. 
God cannot sin. God cannot change. My Bible tells me that God is immutable, unchangeable. He can't change. God cannot cease to exist because he's eternal. And here's another one that God can't do. God cannot and will not be second in your life. What they had done, remember where you were from where you were fallen. You need to repent. You need to get back on course. That's what that word repent means. You need to get back on course. You've drifted off course. You've allowed this world to pull you away. You're getting wrapped up in all the culture. You're getting wrapped up in all the everything that's going on around you and, and the easiness and the comforts of life, but you need to get back on course. How many of us here know Christians in that boat? How many of us here uh, of a youth group of how many? 20 kids? We're the last two that are following Christ today. How many of us know people in that boat? How many people of us know those that have drifted away? How do you fix it? You get back on course. Get back on course. To repent means to to resolve or to make a decision. I, I remember uh, one of the conferences I was at, I listened to the testimony, it was one line that stood out to me. But I listened to the testimony of a, of a then pastor. He's here in Australia. And I thought this was pretty well golden. Anyway, in the early years of his ministry, he, he suffered some, some, some pretty challenging events. And himself and his wife had decided we're going to go over to the US. They were over there for a conference. And they said to the Lord, they said, we're away for two weeks and we don't know whether we should continue in ministry and pastoring or whether we should just go and do something else. But by the time we get back, we want an answer. And so they're over there for two weeks. They're praying. They're seeking God. No answer, no answer. The final day. Isn't this how God works? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The fight, You should know. I'll just peg it in for the last day, Lord. But the final day, they decide they're just going to go and sit by the river. And this gentleman jumps up, runs to his wife and says, I've got the answer. He believed strongly and sternly God had told him this. If you go back and you continue in ministry, God told him, I will bless you. If you go back and you decide to not continue in ministry, I will bless you. But he said, I really felt God told me, go home and make a decision. I believe there's people in this room that need to make a decision. That's what repentance means. To make up your mind, to make a decision, to resolve within yourself, that's it. This world's got nothing for me, God. We hunger for many things, don't we? Our hearts lust after many things. God wants you to make him number one. Yes, you, you will end up reading more of the word. Yes, you'll probably spend longer in prayer. Yes, you'll do all of those things. But they are, they are an organic process of what happens on the inside. God wants you to place him at number one. And what first love looks like is, I'm going to choose God when I could have chosen anything else. Uh, making God number one looks like when I can sit down and watch The Bachelor or the series of Survivor, I'm going to turn the telly off and I'm going to go and speak to God. It looks like when I've got a choice to go and take the easy answer, I'm going to take a stand and say, I stand for Jesus. God wants you to deliberately choose him. That's what first love looks like. It looks like you're the most important thing in my life. My relationship with you is the most important thing in my life and we need to make a decision and change the course. What does that look like? 
We need to remember, we need to repent, and then we need to redo. Let's, let's read what Jesus has got to say. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will, uh, we need to... Let's stop reading now because it doesn't get real nice after this. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's in there. And the last one is... Do the works you did at first. Repent, uh, remember, repent, and redo. Remember when you were first born again. Remember when, Bill, remember when you first met Kate. <laughs> remember, when, remember when Kate was just everything you thought about. I know, I know you're thinking that still happens, right? There's a right and wrong answer from here on in, Bill. <laughs> so I'm going to help you walk through these waters, bro. All right. <laughs> but, but remember when Kate was everything you thought about. And she occupied all of your thoughts. Remember when you would go the extra mile. Remember when you used to open the door for her when she got in the car? You still do that, right, Bill? Yeah. Remember when you gave her the bank card, Bill? <laughs> She was that important to you, you gave her the banker. But remember when you were born, first born again? Remember when, remember when you first got converted and you met Christ and you experienced his presence for the first time? Remember those times when they couldn't get you out of church? You remember those days when you used to come up at the pastor and say, do we only have two meetings a week? Remember those days? Remember those days when you were opening the Bible and reading everything, understanding nothing, but clinging on to John 3.16. That's all you know is John 3.16. The rest of it I don't understand, but I'm going to keep reading it. Remember when you couldn't stop praying? Remember when you first met Jesus and you loved him so much and you'd experienced something so real and tangible for the first time, you couldn't stop telling everybody about him? That's first love. You see, we live in, a, we live in an interesting culture today. I've got to be honest with you, I don't understand millennials. But we've moved into a culture where what we're waiting for is we need the feelings before the action. That's not how it works. What happens, feelings come and go. Ask most of the wives. No, I'm joking. (laughs) That's... What actually happens is actions quite often precede feelings. And what Jesus is saying to these guys, you know what, just start picking your Bible up again. Start going to the prayer meetings. Start hanging around people that are just contagiously infected with my presence. Just start to, Remember when we couldn't get you out of church? Go back to those days. Remember when you went to life group and that wasn't enough? You had to go to all the life groups in the church? Remember those days? Remember... Remember when you used to say things that you, where you thought you knew everything about the Bible and you were a deep scholar and theologian, two weeks saved, and you're telling everybody what they should know? Go back to those days. I'm still doing it now. Jesus says, redo the things you did at first. Because what happens when you start redoing those things? You know those, you know those embers that are on your heart right now? They do, it feels like it's all grown cold. Well, well, the reason is we've stopped putting wood on the fire. And Jesus says there's some embers there, but you've got to start putting wood back on the fire. And you've got to give it a little bit of oxygen. And I know this is a foreign concept to most people up here, but uh, on Wednesday night we spoke about it. But in Tasmania, we learn to love our fireplaces. 
I mean, there, there was a time when we didn't have split-cycle air conditioning. Every house had a, had a wood heater and a chimney. Come, I don't see chimneys in houses here. Go figure, right? But, but we, used to, we used to... We were like scientists with our fire. The, the man of the house was responsible for the fire. We spent all summertime cutting enough wood for the winter. And when we lit the fire, which was... Somewhere around about March, when we lit the fire, that baby didn't go out until well past October. We learned to keep the fire going. What's Jesus saying? Put some wood on the fire. Start doing those things you did first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I'm going to ask Karen if she can come and just play softly as we bring this to a close this morning. I need to introduce you to a crowd. It's very important, but when we get to the church of Pergamum, it's going to become more important. Jesus says, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, they weren't a sect of people that smoked, because it's not the Nicotinians. It's... The Nicolaitans, um, I'll go more into the history when we look at the Church of Pergamon and, and what their roots were and how they got to where they were because it is important uh, when we get to that church. But here's what the teaching of the Nicolaitans was. The teaching of the Nicolaitans was basically described as liberal Christianity. It's, to use terms today, it's called hypergrace. And you've got to run from these teachings. Sounds a little bit like this, and I'm actually almost quoting verbatim a, a very, very prominent preacher today who says, You know what? Now, when you commit adultery, that's a righteous act because where sin abounds, grace abounds more. It's called hypergrace. What it's saying is, there's no problem with your sin. What it, what it leads to is lives that are full of compromise, lives that are full of sin and churches that are empty of Jesus. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, I had, this is, at least you've got this going for you right now. You haven't allowed that to creep in. You haven't allowed that compromise to creep in. I don't know where you find yourself today. I don't know whether you might say, you know what, Pastor, I think I've been in general admission for a long time and I want to get closer. Maybe you're sitting here and you're going, yeah, you know what, I, I, I guess I identify with front row tickets. I want to move past getting my boogie on and I want to go backstage with Jesus. I want to, I'm, I'm all in, Jesus. Wherever you find yourself, I want to ask you, how are the fires on the inside burning? I want to ask you two questions as we draw this to a close. I'm going to ask if you can stand with me before we leave and ask you two questions if if there was something you could put down in your life right now that you know would make you closer to Christ why don't you put it down maybe there's some baggage you're carrying maybe there's some bitterness maybe there's some unforgiveness maybe there's maybe there's some things you need to let go of maybe you need to stand before Christ and say Lord I've let the fires grow dim if there is one thing that you can put down in your life today, what would that be? If, 
if there second question is if there is one thing you could start today if there's one thing that you could pick up today maybe that looks like picking up your bible on a, on a day other than sunday maybe that looks like fellowship maybe it looks like prayer maybe it looks like accountability if there's one thing you could pick up today that would make you closer to Jesus, what is that? And what is stopping you from picking it up? I implore you today, don't settle for general admission. The minute you go backstage, you'll never want to leave. As we pray together, I, I, I pray that the Holy Spirit would do the necessary heart surgery here. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you and and we make ourselves available to do that. But can we stand in his presence and pray together right now? Because I am convinced that all of us are burning at a temperature lower than we could. God's call to the church at Ephesus and God call to us is not to be thermometers. God never called us to read the temperature of the culture around us. God has called us to be thermostats. Wherever we go, we set the temperature. I know as I stand here, I could burn hotter for Jesus. I know the fire burns all too dim. And I know that I spend far too little amount of time backstage with the King of all glory. Jesus, right now, as we all stand in your presence, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would blow upon the coals in our hearts. Forgive us, Father, every one of us, that we don't burn as hot as we should. Forgive us, Jesus, for every moment that we're colder than we should be. Forgive us, Lord, when anything else takes the priority over you and we've left our first love. Forgive us for those times. Holy Spirit, we need you to breathe upon the coals of our hearts right now. We are so prone to drift. So prone to wander. Maybe there's people in this room that have never even entered the concert. Maybe there's people here today that say, you know what, I've never never even had a ticket. Today you can meet the most glorious person in the universe. Don't leave here without doing that. My challenge to all of us this week is do whatever you have to do to stoke those fires. Father, as we're in your presence, I pray right now for every person, Lord God, that we would we would have the wisdom. And Lord God, that you would allow us to see more of Christ, that our eyes would be open and our hearts exposed before you. In the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode.